Welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and a CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you may miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Just another reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we can do it in the studio. Um, so our apologies there, but you know we wanted to continue with the programming, even with COVID-19. And this is a great opportunity for our students to continue spreading the word of the great work that they are doing. So here we are, it's not quite as good, but we're here nonetheless. Now, today I would like to introduce you to Bailey Brandt, who is doing a Master of Science in Neuroscience under the supervision of Drs. Stephen Vanner and Alan Lomax. Welcome to Grad Chat, Bailey. Hi, Colette. Thank you for having me. It's, it's uh, interesting. I, I say this every now and then that sometimes I have to put a call out for students to come on the show and other times people reach out to, to me, which is fantastic. I much prefer that way. And what's even better is when I find out the kind of work that they're doing, I, I, and I say it again, I always find it fascinating. So with Bailey, Bailey's research topic is diet, irritable bowel syndrome and pain. Quite a nasty title there. <laughs> Anything to talk about the guts and pain is not too good. And then the diet is like, struth what's wrong with my diet now kind of thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Bailey, perhaps you can just give us a, a little overview first of your research before we get into the nitty gritty of our questions to you. Yeah, for sure. So I was particularly interested in how diet influences pain signaling in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And so there's a lot of evidence to support that many patients with uh, this condition, so IBS, have their symptoms triggered by things that they eat. So I wanted to look at, you know, a sp specific dietary component and, and how that causes pain. I know, and we, we, that happens to a lot of us, and it may not always irritable bowel syndrome. I mean, lots of people have different gut aches for different reasons, so it's nice that you're tuning into one particular area. So I, I guess the obvious first question is, what exactly is irritable bowel syndrome and who are more at risk to get it? Yeah, so I guess we can maybe call it IBS from now going forward. And yes, probably easy for me too. <laughs> so yeah, IBS is a disease that's characterized by abdominal pain associated with altered bowel habits. So that's the, like the textbook definition. And, and it generally, so it affects actually 10 to 20% of the global population and about 10% wow. of the North American population. So that's, that's quite a large amount of people that this condition affects. And it, it tends to affect women more predominantly than men. And I, I guess the other thing with this is that stress and diet play a major role in, in symptom onset in these patients. Stress. 
Yeah, stress. Stress stress with diet. Okay, so that's probably why I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here, of course, and this is what you're trying to find out, maybe women's percentages are a little bit higher because they do do a lot of juggling of jobs. Yeah, yeah. It's very multifactorial and complex. And, and, and really how the disease comes about is not, is not fully understood yet. So, so yeah, but, but stress is definitely, and p- perhaps maybe why it affects women more than men, you know, based mm-hmm. on different hormones and, and things like that as well. So. What makes IBS get to IBS? Because it could just be a pain in the gut and you've got a bit of indigestion. With gastrointestinal, so GI related disorders, there's a couple of others so that are, are, are quite mainstays. So there's um, inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, what people classically know as Crohn's and colitis. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so IBS is actually what they call a diagnosis of exclusion. So what that means is, is when someone's diagnosed with IBS, it means that their doctor, the physician has already gone through the tests to understand if it is Crohn's or colitis or something else. So once you get to the very last thing that it's not, then you in this lumped into this group of, of IBS, of irritable bowel syndrome. Oh, so it's basically the, the syndrome that you don't know what it is. It's what's left. Um, yeah, that's kind of what diagnosis of, ex- of exclusion, uh, I guess, means. Um, but but there are there are some like efforts within research that have that have you know kind of outlined what it most likely is causing it. Mm, so so right. yeah, there's there's it's not it's not you're not totally hopeless hopeless with this disorder for sure. <laughs> so it's not like okay, don't know where to go next. So we'll. Chuck it all in one bucket, yeah. but it's but it's interesting because with your particular work, you're looking specifically at MSG in people's diets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I guess my question there would be: What is MSG, and what is the purpose of MSG being in food in the first place? So, MSG is is monosodium glutamate, and it's it's a popular food additive. It's a it's a salt, so it's no different than like sodium chloride. So, your classic table salt, like it, it's one of those things that makes our food taste good, right? Right. So, so, MSG is responsible for that odd taste sensation of umami, and it's been used in our foods to obviously improve the flavor. And so you find it used a lot in highly preserved and frozen foods. So that's so uh, that's, that's the way that they keep those foods tasting fresh is they, they add MSG. Okay. Okay. So we need to be looking at our packets a little bit better because too much salt is not good for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's the whole sodium part to that. So the whole excess salt consumption, but, but in a sense too, uh, what I'm more particularly interested in is the, is the glutamate side. And so, so glutamate, just has some background and what's going to be kind of related to this is is an excitatory uh, neurotransmitter so it's uh, used in in our bodies naturally for our our neurons to communicate between one another that's kind of what's going to layer into this whole pain idea later on it's it's interesting because when it comes to msg i always thought i didn't realize it was and i should have realized because it's got the word sodium in there but i always thought of it as more of a like a thickener but but clearly not. Um, like you said, it's more of a salt and a preservative sort of substance. And then the second part of what you've just mentioned is how it affects the the neurons in our bodies. So that, that's interesting that you're going there. And did, was that obvious to most scientists that it's more on the neural side that you're looking at? I, I guess what hasn't been, uh, maybe not obvious, but very well researched is, is really how diet 
communicates with our nervous system. Yes. And and far too often we we don't really think we everyone kind of suggests changing our diet as a way to improve, you know, a condition, but but rarely is it ever looked at farther than that point, right? Like what parts of the diet are we changing? How do those interact with our body and how are those interacting with our disease condition? Right. So so what is the controversy over MSG? So MSG was implicated in causing like a what they call like a pseudo allergy condition where people maybe would consume large quantities of it and then they kind of feel headaches and, and flushing. And it was thought that this is kind of related to an allergy. So that's where it got a lot of its popularity with regards to the controversy. However, there was many studies that looked at that and said, you know, you'd have to consume a, a very large quantity that's almost, would not, you would not be exposed to that in everyday life for those things mm-hmm. to happen. So the, so that's kind of where the controversy started for, for healthy people, at least. But then what I was interested in was it was because there's a study that looked at MSG consumption in patients with IBS. And so, and they found that patients who consumed MSG, so it was a randomized control trial. So meaning they removed, these patients removed it from their diet, found symptom relief. And those who responded, they got them the challenge with either a placebo or the MSG blindly. And those who got the MSG found their symptoms returned, specifically abdominal pain. That's where I got interested. It's interesting because when you do these sorts of things and and try and pinpoint one particular food item, it's not always easy, is it? Because you're you're saying you're controlling the MSG, but uh, do you also control the food that's around the MSG? Is Is that always also controlled? So for instance... I'm always having, I don't know, some sort of stew or something, mm-hmm. something like that is, is part of your control. Always, It's always with stew. So stew with or without MSG. Yeah. <laughs> because, because that could bring in another element, couldn't it? Yeah. With all those controls. Yeah. So, so diet is, and this may be, may be one of the, the key reasons why it hasn't been studied as thoroughly is because it's very hard to control when you're doing these types of studies, because you have to, some people, when they're looking at what is causing like maybe their pain or bloating, they, you know, they, the dietitian will ask them to, you know, kind of, they'll do it reductively, right? They'll say, okay, don't eat this for a week. Okay. Did you feel better? Don't eat this for a week. And I, am I by no means am a dietitian, so I can't, I can't speak too much to this, but I, but I know that Yes, controlling for what people eat is very difficult. You have to keep detailed food diaries. And and then in another sense, you also have to offer a, a really big list of alternatives, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes the foods you're asking them to avoid is something that's very common in their diet, right? So it right. can cause stress in itself. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. That's a very good point. So I guess the other thing I'd like to ask there. The pain in IBS patients, uh, is it kind of like a, a normal gut pain or is it a gut pain that you just doubled over or or is it just a twinge or an uncomfort? You know, um, where does that come from, I guess? Yeah. So, so that, the, again, I'm by no means a physician. Uh, and, and, <laughs> Putting you on the spot there. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there are, it's, it's not like just, you know, you eat something, you had a stomach ache one time, this, these, these symptoms I mentioned, so the abdominal pain is associated with altered bowel habits, 
has to be um, continuous over, uh, I believe, a three-month period. And the pain itself is is kind of unrelenting and chronic almost in a way. So so it's it's much more serious than like a twinge uh, type right. of pain. With abdominal pain and pain related to our organs, it's also very diffuse, right? So, you know, when, I, when we feel pain on the outside of our bodies, we kind of are able to, to locate that, right? We know if our like hand is getting pinched or it's our leg, right? right. But within, mm-hmm. with inside of us, we, we have a hard time localizing that because because we're not super aware most people aren't super aware of of how their internal organs are organized so so i mean the pain is also very diffuse right so so that makes it also difficult in diagnosing you know if you have uh pain related to your intestines or maybe pain related to your bladder that's kind of if i could say anything about the pain is yes it's diffuse and and with this condition definitely uh more chronic than acute so you're you're mainly looking at MSG and its impact with IBS. Yeah. And we kind of alluded to this before anyway, but how does a person's diet contribute to IBS? It's got to be more than than surely than just MSG. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things you mentioned was stress. Yeah, yeah. So there's, uh, like I said, it's a very multifactorial disease, which makes it also very difficult to say, it's this one thing, you know what I mean? Like one thing causing causing the syndrome because it's, it's a multitude of things that have to interact. So an individual who I believe you've had on here before, uh, Caroline Tuck. She yes, was, she, one of our postdocs. Yeah, so she was actually the one who start, started this study with me and designed it. So she studies diet and IBD. And so there's a number of things within the diet, you know, gluten, what she was looking at. So that was FODMAPs. So those yes. fermentable sugars that we find mm-hmm. our bacteria digest and create gas within our GI tract, which then causes pain because of how much uh, our intestines are distending or yes. excess water. So there's a number of things that, a number of diets, I should say, that have been looked at because if, for different reasons, they all have different kind of mechanisms, I guess I could say. But yeah, so I, I guess that that's what makes a dietitian's uh, job so important and difficult with these conditions, because you really have to look at what diet or what dietary things are having an effect in in a, a group of patients that all have the same disorder, right? Because it's not a one size right. fits all. Well, actually, I'm going to, there's a question I've got for you a little bit later talking about the geography of people. So uh, I'm going to hold that thought. Okay. (laughs) But before I go on to that, so you're talking about pain and and pain is usually, like you said before, some sort of nervous reaction. Mm-hmm. So, so are you actually looking at the brain to understand the connection between MSG and IBS, or or is there something else you're looking at in particular? Are you going up to the brain, or are you looking more closely within the gut area? Yeah, so I'm particularly focused more peripherally, so that so not not the central nervous system, so not the brain or the spinal cord. I'm actually right. looking at the nerves, so the sensory nerves that that actually detect things that are happening within the gut. So I want to, so those are the nerves that I'm interested in. So not, not exactly all the way up to the brain. So I'm looking. But there more, must be a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our organs are what we call innervated um, quite, uh, quite extensively. And, and especially, especially our GI tract because of, you know, every <laughs> evolutionarily speaking, um, we've, 
our bodies have always needed energy, right? And that's right. that's where we where we were able to exchange things from what we eat and and take away what what we our bodies need. So so detecting you know what's in our food, you know how things are going with digestion, and and also and then on on the end that I'm looking at, what things are dangerous to us, right? Like what and why mm-hmm. we sense pain and, and why we're responding to to things in our diet. I'm looking kind of at that level specifically. It must be interesting for you though because you've picked msg as the the dietary factor yeah but like you said even before that's just possibly one of many that can cause ibs and and maybe i should refine that a little bit because i guess what my research is looking at is is not so much as these dietary factors are causing the syndrome because it's not really believed that that's the case but it's more or less that that these dietary factors are contributing to symptom flare-ups so so it's it's for instance so someone so so ibs maybe develops um regardless of what diet what diet you're on however the things we eat then can cause the symptoms of ibs to flare up right And so the symptoms of IBS, apart from the pain, which of course you're looking at, um, could also be distension of, you know, the intestines and and areas like, and parts of the guts. And is that what you're saying? Or is that one of the other? Yeah. So studying the GI tract, you know, a lot of people think about their bowel habits, uh, like that's immediately what they jump to. And kind of being in the student in neuroscience, it's it's always a little, I have to kind of bridge the gap there (laughs) (laughs) that I'm not just, you know, studying the bowel habits but yeah so it's it's also related to to what type of bowel habits may be constipation or diarrhea or mixed symptoms because it has to be associated with that for it to be IBS so it's not only just pain but these patients are also prone to these altered bowel habits right Um, and those and those symptoms so uh, like related to constipation or diarrhea are sometimes brought on by are brought on by other things not related to the the nerves that I'm particularly studying. So they might be related more to their um, what we call enteric nervous system, which is kind of our dedicated nervous system for for the GI tract, or like motility and secretion problems. Right. Yeah, a number of so so again, very very complex um, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> type of uh, disease for sure. So I I just. I just want to go back to the one section of MSG. You talked about the glutamate. Yeah. That's the one that has um, seems to be reacting for the the neural sensors and things. Yeah. How did you know that? Yeah. So I did my undergrad uh, here at Queen's in life sciences, and I specialized in neuroscience. So I've always been quite fascinated with the nervous system and, and the brain. Um, and so... A, a lot of your training in those types of courses, you know, you learn about this uh, particular neurotransmitter. So, you know, when I was just kind of talking about Caroline Tuck, you know, she mm-hmm. gave me some options because I did an undergrad project, a uh, fourth year project, and into looking at a few different things with regards to diet and the nervous system and IBS. And I chose this because, you know, I started to think, you know, glutamate you know, is one of these excitatory neurotransmitters, meaning, you know, it excites our, our, our nerves naturally. So yeah. I was interested to look at, so, you know, this neurotransmitters, it's, it's in our food. So, mm-hmm. and it's an amino acid too. So, so I'm like, it would make sense almost if, you know, when I came across that study I mentioned earlier with the IBS patients consuming yes. MSG and sensing pain, it would make sense that, you know, 
the glutamate portion of this maybe is getting through that intestinal barrier and right. you know, acting on these nerves and exciting them right that these nerves and particularly are... when like you said it's in all our preserved foods yeah and that's kind of an interesting point too because why i was also interested in it was because ibs tends to to affect uh, there's studies out there that demonstrated effects um, people of lower socioeconomical class and and, right. and in general those people are are the accessible foods are these frozen and preserved items, right? Yeah. So, exactly. so it could it could be a compounding situation, like a positive feedback loop, where you know people with IBS um, are having to eat food that is high in this food additive that is maybe right. causing their symptoms, right? So. Well, I guess that comes on to the question that I wanted to ask you, and yeah. it's related to another little side project you've got um, to GI health in, in Indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. And in, well, I guess I would need to ask you, carrying on from that answer you just given me, what is the connection between IBS, MSG and GI health in Indigenous populations? Because we all know it's hard for people to get hard for communities that are outside the metropolitan regions to get cheap and healthy food Mm -hmm. because it costs so much to get it there yeah so i should say looking at this has actually been uh it's very much in its infancy as a project that i'm planning to do for my phd Excellent. Um, I like to hear that word. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm actually Mohawk. So my family's from Tainanega, First Nation right. for the Mohawk First Nation just near Belleville. And so I've always kind of wanted to combine my interests, my academic interests with some some personal interests and, and you know, um, my Indigenous heritage being one of them. So this is a project that I've been discussing with, with a few other stakeholders in terms of looking at maybe not MSG particularly as, as, but yes. diet as a whole and looking at right. traditional diet and, you know, what diet people are consuming. But realistically um, we have to start way further back than that because there's very little data that we have on the prevalence of these conditions. Um, so like IBD or IBS um, within first nations or indigenous communities, you oh, know, okay. globally. So, so really, um, the starting point might be just, you know, seeing how prevalent it is and seeing, um, you know, how based on the different cultures and their understanding of health um, kind of view this type of disease. So, right. yeah, that, there's definitely a lot, a lot of questions and directions, but definitely something I, I'm, I'm looking at doing for a Ph.D. project. Well, I think that will be a fascinating project for you because I mean as you've alluded to sometimes it's those lower socioeconomic groups which Mm -hmm. I hate to think anyone's in in those particular groups but it it does happen yeah you know access to good healthy food has always been an issue and it's one of those things that's always frustrated me actually because we should be promoting the healthy foods and making healthy foods cheaper to get as opposed to all the preserved foods, Mm -hmm. which we know is not as healthy for us. And yet it just seems that we've got it all the wrong way around. And, and all that does is exacerbate all our health issues and the health system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
what's going on in our health system and that just more money goes towards fixing these things where you think well why don't we just flip it around and just give people healthy food yeah uh, you hit the nail on the head there with you know if we spent a little more money up front on making these foods more accessible we would see such a reduction you know of of way greater magnitude in the healthcare costs that come after so yes. definitely it's it's definitely in our society to, to be more reactive than proactive though yeah it's it's a f- bit frustrating at times isn't it <laughs> i'm going to digress a little or go on a bit of a tangent i've been every now and then i watch this show called below zero and it's about people who are living up in the north in the very cold and mm-hmm. how they live throughout the year and of course they you know harvest animals just for what they need and the importance of making sure they've got the right food yeah. to get them through the winter and things like that but that's good for their for their diet because that's what they're used to it's not like going down to the local supermarket to get a frozen dinner which of course they can't do when they're out there so i'm i'm sure they've got a much mm-hmm. healthier lifestyle than than those of us even in in the metropolitan regions where it's very easy to go and get a frozen dinner. Yeah, no, exactly. So it's going to be a good project for you. Yeah, I'm very excited. Now, before we finish, I would like to talk to you about something else. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the fact that you are, you are Mohawk, because I know you're also very involved with the Queen's Native Student Association here. Can you give, mm-hmm. tell us a bit about, about that association that you're involved in? Yeah, so when I came to Queens, um, I did like self-identify, which I, I totally recommend to, to students who are Indigenous. And, you know, I was aware of things happening at Four Directions Student Centre. And then not until my third year did I kind of feel comfortable, like I applied for this association. So this is a group of students, mostly undergrad, that, you know, get together weekly, bi-weekly and, you know, discuss Things related to Indigenous issues on campus, ways we're going to uh, share Indigenous culture. You know, we had uh, cedar tea and bannock sale. We've had that for multiple years. We've done uh, the major thing that the group uh, puts on is Indigenous Awareness Week. So that we had, um, I was one year involved in organizing this hoop dancing uh, workshop. And then we did Métis Jig one year. So it's it's really like a nice group for me to be a part of because it's students that, you know, there's that I might not have uh, met otherwise who are indigenous and experiencing similar emotions and, and, you know, seeing things on campus that maybe, maybe need to be addressed. So, so yeah, we, we meet with different groups, uh, different stakeholders on campus. And and so I've been on it for the last, I wasn't on it last year, but I'm again on it, decided to join this year again. So yeah. We, We need to try and get a few more grad students on there then it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely need to open it up more to those students too. So that's great. So maybe we need to sort of uh, promote that a little bit more for you, because I think that's great. And, and I imagine it's been quite difficult this past year with COVID when you can't actually meet. Yeah. But um, I'm sure you found ways there. But you're also on the new Dean of Health Sciences table for EDII which is great too. Did they approach you? Or did you put your hand up for it? Yeah. So I, back in, I believe it was May, or maybe later they began, uh, yeah, it must have been August, actually, um, asking, they just put out a call for for students interested. Dean Philpott wanted to start this table on, on EDI. So I applied because I've always kind of been, obviously with my involvement in QNSA, interested in social issues affecting at least Indigenous populations, but the entire BIPOC community. 
So, right. so I so I put an application in, and then they they actually got over like 140 applications. That's fantastic. So they were able to create, and they wanted she wanted everyone to be involved, which is is great. So so she created all these working groups, and then there was an application to be on the executive with her directly, and then um, a number of other stakeholders. So. So I applied for that, and then I'm now the Indigenous Learner Representative, and we just had a meeting last night, actually. So it's been an incredible experience, obviously, like you alluded to, difficult mm-hmm. meeting over Zoom and not in person. But but yeah, it's been it's been excellent trying to discuss ways that we can make the faculty more inclusive and, and diverse. So can I ask a question? What what do you mean by an Indigenous learner representative? What what does that role do? So on the executive co- committee, there's obviously Dean Philpott, and then there's the, the leads for the several working groups. So there's working groups related to culture and community, admissions, ah, professional okay. development. So all of those leads meet on this executive table. And then there's Black learner representative and then an Indigenous learner representative and a few other okay. groups. And so Indigenous learner representative, essentially... A, as it says, like an, um, an Indigenous student and, um, you know, representing, I guess, the opinions of my Indigenous peers in relation to what's being discussed. So I just try to, you know, offer insights from an Indigenous perspective. And, you know, I try to take things back that we talk about to the Native Student Association so that it's not only right. my voice, it's yes. collective. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I wish you best of luck with all of that because it sounds fascinating that you're on. I mean, it's not an easy time right now. So the fact that you're going out there and helping, I'm sure everyone appreciates that support you're giving. Yeah, thank you. So best of luck with that. We are going to have to call it quits, as I say, each week mm-hmm. because we've, um, you know, we've got plenty here to let people know about the kind of work that you're doing and really fascinating work, actually, when we talk about diet and how diet can affect us in different ways. It usually perks up people's ears because I, I, I doubt there's anyone around here that hasn't had some issue because of diet. They yeah. may not have known it at the time, but um, often it's related back to diet and things. So thank you for talking to us about MSG and IBS and and kind of work that you're doing also with the Queen's Native Association. So that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome, Bailey. And maybe we can get you back when you've done a bit more work or when you get into your PhD yeah. as, as well. It would be great to have you back and see how you're going. And what I might do is put on, on our website uh, the link to the Native Association if people want to sort of look into that as well. Yeah, that would be excellent. Would that help? Okay, that's great. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Best of luck with the rest of your research because it's a very good topic and and go for it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. Great. So that's it, everyone. Another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. Just type in grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Good.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.